Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And today is Wednesday, September 30th, which means we are two days away from the start of my first ever uh, event like this. We're coming up on the East Texas Showdown and Slowdown, which is going to start at the Bullet Grill in Point Blank, Texas, and take the participants through Sam Houston National Forest and Davy Crockett National Forest. They'll be seeing a lot of, of loblolly pine trees and a lot of remote back roads in Texas. So far, we have 52 people completely signed up, registered, and ready to go. We probably have some more scragglers come in pretty soon. And Track Leaders is live, so this is happening. I, like you, am feeling probably anxious and nervous and excited for different reasons, but of course I want this to go well and uh, really hoping for a good event. Right now it looks like we could get a little bit of rain, but it's not looking like anything too crazy. So ideally we're just going to mostly get the lower temperatures, which uh, is the main thing. So the final stats for the showdown route are 380 miles, which is 611 kilometers with 15,900 feet of elevation. And the slowdown route is 280 miles with 11,528 feet of climbing. And 280 miles is 450 kilometers. So on today's episode, I've brought in Matt Fitzgerald, who is the author of a book called How Bad You Want It. He is an athlete himself. He's written over 20 books, most of them on endurance uh, sports or um, the psychology of endurance sports, eating for endurance. Like, he really specializes in endurance athletes and endurance sports and a lot of aspects of endurance sports. So he is a wealth of knowledge, but I wanted to bring him on specifically for today's episode because his book, How Bad Do You Want It?, is the book that I read when I was training for my 2018 Grand Gravel 500 race, and I credit it 100% with getting me mentally ready for the event and then also powering me through the event. This idea that we're going to talk about perception of effort and how it is our mind that is holding us back oftentimes and not our body is fascinating. And the way he breaks it down really appeals to me. It was a huge help. And so today I brought him on the podcast just for you. Hopefully this will help participants of either the showdown or the slowdown route just get mentally sharpened and ready to take on a challenge you know whether you're doing it for the first time or you know your 10th you're always on a journey and you're always pushing yourself to do better and so no matter where you're at there's always an opportunity to get better, to improve. And it doesn't even have to be about going faster. It can just be about having a more enjoyable experience. So it's a tool and it can be used in a lot of different ways. So that's our episode today, but it's not just for participants of the East Texas Showdown or Slowdown. Of course, anybody who competes in athletics and wants to 
sharpen up their mental game a little bit. I hope this will be a uh, helpful and enjoyable episode. Okay, well, I think that's about it. But before we get to the episode, I wanted to thank this week's newest patrons. This week, we have Thomas Buttery. What a great last name, Buttery. And Shane Hits. Another, man, we got Buttery and Hits on the on the hit list today. That's it. We got two new patrons. So I want to thank y'all so much for stepping up to support the show. It means so much. We are getting closer and closer to our goal of hiring me to be the full-time host of the podcast. In fact, we are 60.76% of the way to our goal. So if you'd like to hire me and be my boss so that I can become a full-time host of the Bikes for Dead podcast. You can find out all the details over at patreon.com forward slash bikes for death. And I don't have any ads per se for today's episode, but I do want to give a shout out to all of my sponsors of the East Texas Showdown and Slowdown. So this year's race is sponsored by Ren Sports, Ruby Coffee, Rock Geist, Quadlock, Kuat, and Avani Salon. That's my girlfriend's shop. She's based in the Woodlands. If you're in that area, you should hit her up. I really do appreciate all the support. It makes all the difference in the world. I couldn't be doing the podcast, this event. I mean, this is a free event, so I really do appreciate all of the support that I've gotten so I can do these fun events and bring this community together and feel really lucky. So, Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. And without further ado, let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right, everybody. Today, I got a, a special guest on the line, Matt Fitzgerald, who's an accomplished author, coach, and many other things. And uh, anyway, Matt, thanks for uh, right off the bat. I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. But what are these many other things that I'm <laughs> good at? Because I can't think of any. <laughs> well, we'll uh, maybe you're only good at writing. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes I think so. And maybe not that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's. I was going to, I was going to say, you know, like you, you host a podcast as well. And so I was going to, you know, ask you like podcaster to podcaster, if you ever get kind of like overwhelmed before you interview somebody, you know, you've written over 20 books. Um, you, you do coaching, you do in training plans. I mean, there's a lot of things that you, you do in, in this sector. And I found that the most difficult process for getting ready for this interview was simply trying to take all this information and, and make it kind of concise, you know? Yes. Well, I mean, I'm a newbie at, at podcasting, so I only got into the game. I've 
like I think my show is on episode number 15 or so. So not 91. And think about how much you've learned since you did your 15th (laughs) episode, you know, so like, that's where I am right now. So (laughs) you could teach me something, I'm sure. I think it's like anything in life. I mean, you talk in your book about building up like uh, mental endurance. That's just life, right? I mean, life is kind of this this ongoing challenge where we're always trying to level up against how we were previously. And oftentimes, the only way to do it, it seems like, is just to do it, you know? Right. There's no substitute for experience. Like, I, I don't care how good you are naturally at something, when you do it the first time, you're not going to do it as well as when you've done it the 1000th time, <laughs> which is nice, right? You know, like it's that's what we love about endurance sports is like you you get out what you put in. Uh, that's a that's a very fair equation. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, you were you kind of downplayed your accomplishments, but I do want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to my audience. You do have a lot of books, you, you know, this website, you, you, the podcast, you do a lot. So why don't, why don't you like just kind of summarize uh, or introduce yourself to my audience? Sure thing. So, you know, I really got my start as a writer. I grew up always wanting to be a writer and then became an endurance sports journalist because I am an athlete too, runner, triathlete, and used to work for Triathlete Magazine like way back in the day and then got into coaching through that and also became like a sports nutritionist. But as you said, I've written a number of books. One of them just turned into a company. I I, I wrote a book called 80-20 Running that did pretty well. And I I was like the last guy who was ever picked to be like least likely to be an entrepreneur in my high school yearbook that like that's me. But somehow like I am that. So 80-20 Endurance is this uh, sort of online resource for like training plans and coaching and stuff like that for endurance athletes. So that's become a focus lately. And that's, that's pretty much where I am today. So I, I'm not familiar with 80-20 as I've, I'm familiar with you through your book, How Bad Do You Want It?, which is what we're going to primarily be talking about today. Researching for this podcast, I, I definitely came across your 80-20. It's, there's a lot going on there. Give us an idea of, break that down. What is the 80-20? Yeah. So people who are familiar with the Pareto principle, like in business, like that's one 80, 20, like, you know, you get 80% of your productivity from 20% of of your resources. Like that's not the 80, 20 we're about. The 80, 20 we're about is the optimal intensity balance for endurance training, like across disciplines from rowing to cross country skiing, to swimming, to triathlon. And I didn't come up with it and scientists didn't come up with it. It's just, it evolved in the real world at the elite echelons of various endurance disciplines over generations. Like, you know, the human body is the human body and endurance is endurance. Like, like we're not like smartphones that can keep just getting better forever. Like, like once you figured out the optimal way to train the human body for endurance, it's done. You know, you can still refine But like, you know, once you figured it out, like pat yourself on the back and just keep doing that. And there was this just kind of cool convergent evolution that occurred over, if you look at, if you rewind, like until like, to the like late 19th century, when the modern endurance sports were born, like cycling and running, you know, training methods evolved, but they also converged. And now like this 80, 20 intensity balance is what elite 
the best endurance athletes in the world do in every discipline. But guess what? Very, very few non-elite endurance athletes train that way for various reasons. So like they need to know. So it's 80% what and 20% what? Right on. Yeah. 80% low intensity, 20% moderate to high intensity. Yeah. Interesting. Joe or Jane, like, you know, competitive recreational runner does more like 50, 50, like 50% moderate. I call it the moderate intensity rut. Like that is where most athletes are. So you got to get them to kind of slow down most of the time. You still get to go hard. You know, 20% is not insignificant. And, and what's, what's cool is if you actually dial it back on your days that are supposed to be easy, you can really get after it, you know, when you're supposed to. And so you get your bread buttered on both sides. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious about this because this touches on a concept of, of training that I've heard for bikepacking. And I'm curious how familiar you are with the sport of bikepacking, ultra endurance, uh, self-supported racing. Yeah, I mean, that's really out of my lane, I would say, you know, like I've had my encounters, I've created the odd training plan or two for folks that are into that. As long as they understand, I let them know, Hey, I'm not super experienced in this area. So yeah, I'm aware of it. Let me ask you this question because a, a training plan that I've heard and actually Mike Hall, who, um, has a tour divide record, on uh, it's it's the Great Divide mountain bike route. You might be familiar with it. It goes from Canada to uh, the border of uh, Mexico and United States, and it's about twenty five hundred miles, all mostly off pavement. But like Mike Hall, that has a record on on the Tour Divide, he would do intervals probably like five days a week and just really max out his system. And then on the weekends, he would do more base mileage and, and do more longer events. And that's been a training plan that I've seen other, you know, athletes in this sport do. Do you, do you have any, I mean, obviously this isn't exactly your bread and butter, but do you have any thoughts on that versus what the paradox of what you just uh, laid out? Yeah. I mean, just knowing what I do know, that doesn't seem like the optimal way to train <laughs> for that type of event, quite honestly, because it's, it's pretty, it really is pretty universal. You know, you, you take even like, you know, elite rowers that their races are like six minutes long. Well, that's pretty short, you know, and it's, and it's rowing. And then you take world tour cyclists, like these stage racers who are doing 120 mile, miles a day racing, like 21 days <laughs> in a row, like very, very different from that rower doing a six minute race and their intensity balance when you analyze it is the same, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not, their training isn't the same in every detail, obviously, but that part of it is the same. So it's like, okay, if it applies that broadly, like what doesn't it apply to like in, in the endurance space, it's not how you would want to train for boxing, but if you're an endurance athlete of any kind, then it's probably the way to go. The reasoning I've heard behind it is because, you know, if you're talking about, you know, a 2,500 mile race or even a 5,000 mile race of which, you know, there are out there. So you can't really train for a 5,000 mile race in a normal way. If you're doing a triathlon, I mean, you could go swim, you could go bike a hundred miles and you could run a marathon. I mean, you could do all those in a day and it would be hard, but I mean, you could do that. You can't go and ride 2,500 miles in a day. And so conditioning your body to that, 
that that's what I've heard is that it's just a, an answer to that. It's a way to condition your body in a short period of time for an effort that you can't really train for by replicating it any other way. Again, like knowing what I know and there's stuff I don't know for sure, I would have the same objective, but I, that's not the way I would try to achieve that. So I, I, I share the objective. Like I get it. You can't really prepare for that. So then it's like, well, then how do you prepare? <laughs> uh, and like, that's, that's not the first thing I would try for sure. I mean, I am here to get your advice. I mean, and, and and let me let me preface this by saying one reason I'm really excited to talk to you and we were talking about it before we came on air is I've been wanting to talk to a sports psychologist or somebody that has expertise in this area because the mental side is such a huge part of it. But bikepacking itself is still relatively new, meaning we don't have, you know, all the doctors and the scientific papers and all the things that you quote in your books to go off of, you know, I mean, it's kind of, I think that people have just kind of been figuring it out on their own. Uh, some people have coaches, but again, you know, how developed are their coaching? You know, how, how confident are they in their program? How many athletes have they had go through it? You know, so it's, it's still like relatively new. So I think it's okay to have a discussion about, how would you do it? You know? Yeah. So yeah. Way to put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a chance to think about it. No, I, I I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. I'm okay. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, again, this, this could completely fail, but in the little bit of experience I have in this realm, it seems like the closest thing to a formula that like has a high success rate, you actually treat the first part of the race itself or, or the event itself as the last part of your training. So you actually want to deliberately underprepare a little bit so that like you're at that phase in your training when you're really ready for some real training. And guess what? That real training is the first three, four days of your race. So you're, you're pretty fresh going in and you actually get fitter it's a heavy load, but if you're fresh and, and, and you have a great foundation, you can handle it. And yeah, then you start to really feel like shit at some point, but that's going to happen regardless. And, and you've gotten several days into it and actually gotten fitter in the process. And then it's just mostly mental the rest of the way. So the, the training would be oriented toward that, you know, just sort of like deliberately, you don't want to, you don't want to feel underprepared, but you just want to be like, no, this is exactly how fit I want to be at the start of this. And it actually gives me confidence that I'm not fully fit. Yeah. For your plans, I have to assume that it's not just mentals. I mean, it's got to be health, be fitness, eating, mental, the whole deal, right? Well, I mean, that's certainly, I cover all of that in my one-on-one -on -one coaching, like through the internet and through some of my books, like I sell training plans, like ready-made training plans, not, you know, not for bikepacking, but um, <laughs> you know, for, for, for a lot of other stuff. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's a plan. And, and for, for a lot of people, even though it's like sort of one size fits all and it it's, doesn't cover the nutrition, it doesn't cover the psychology, but so many athletes, like if they've just been figuring it out for themselves and they're, they're pretty much doing everything wrong, if they just follow a cookie cutter plan, a good one, like they will have a tremendous breakthrough, you know, yeah. cause like it's fixing a lot of stuff. And then 
then you can go on from there. Then you fine tune. Yeah. I want to sell you on bike packing, man. We need more uh, smart minds in the bike packing world that are, you know, helping athletes and coming out with training plans and all that. So uh, I want to tell you about how I found out about you. So I was training in 2017, 2018. I was training for a 500 mile bike packing, self-supported race. And just so you know a little bit about me, I'm not an athlete really. I mean, I guess that's an athletic thing to do, but I'm just a guy that likes to ride bikes and wanted to push myself and see where my limits were. And I don't remember exactly how, I think I was just scrolling through Amazon and, and came across your book, How Bad Do You Want It? And that was the book that I used. And that was the methodology that I used to carry me through that race and, and complete it. And it was without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. I mean, I woke up on the morning of day four, I could barely walk. I was puking. I was shaking. My body was rebelling against everything <laughs> that it was experiencing. And I had to ask myself a qu simple question. How bad do you want it? You know, and it's such a simple question. And the thing I like about it is that only you can answer it. Nobody can answer it for you. It's a, it's an internal thing. And every single second of that race, whether it's a six minute row or a, you know, 600 mile race, whatever, you have to ask yourself every single point along the way, how bad do you want it? So fast forward four years till now, I'm uh, hosting my own event. It actually, when this podcast comes out, the race will start. Uh, so this will come out on Wednesday and then the or the um, race will start on Friday. And so my, my thought was, is I wanted to get you on and we could kind of talk through some of the things that I took out of how bad do you want it in hopes that, you know, maybe it'll benefit them and, and anybody else who listens to this podcast. I'm curious, uh, before we get into the book, so you've written over 20, I didn't count exactly, but I'm curious, like, how well do you remember the books that you've read? Like, I was like, at, like going through and writing on these questions. I'm like, man, there's a lot of details in this book. I wonder how well you remember all of them or we've got to find out. <laughs> no, no, not, not very well. Uh, it's funny. Like, yeah, I was always that way. Like I'm very much like an on to the next thing type of guy. Quite honestly, like my biggest driver is creativity. Like I love to create and people kind of like think of me as like Mr. Science guy. Cause like I, I talk about science and I, I do find it interesting, but that's, I'm really more of like a creative writer. And when you have that mindset, you're like, I don't care what I wrote already. Like that was yesterday. You're trying to think you're always on fire for, for what's next. And that, that just makes me naturally like just for fun. Now I like, especially now that I'm 50 years old, like I'll pick up a book I wrote 20 years ago and just read through it a bit. And sometimes I will remember it. And very often I will not. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I won't try to stump you today, but why don't you give an overall premise of what, how bad do you want it is? So yeah, the site, uh, the subtitle rather is uh, Master the Psychology of Mind Over Muscle. And that's a little more descriptive, right? I love the psychological dimension of endurance sports. And what's cool, if you are interested in that stuff, is that there's a lot of really fascinating science going on in this area. Because like we've been able to kind of open up the black box of the brain and look inside and see what the brain is doing. 
when we're doing endurance sports and it's pretty incredible and sort of it has practical implications for like how we try to reach our limits as endurance athletes. So I became interested in something that's known as the psychobiological model of exercise tolerance. And it's just, you know, it's, it's new, fascinating science, but it's like, it's also stuff that completely changes how you might approach, you know, trying to achieve, achieve your limits. And I, and in this book, I, I decided like, how do I deliver like this brain science for endurance athletes in a way that like is digestible and has yeah. the effect I want, which is to make you get out there and kick ass. And so I chose to do that through stories. Cause I love, uh, I know you do, you're a story guy too. You know, I just, I, I think stories are so, so powerful and, and science really is a story too. So the book, just like each chapter tells like a, a story about a real athlete, often a very well-known endurance athlete who just overcome, came great adversity to achieve something awesome. And each one of those stories demonstrates a little bit of the science I'm trying to convey. And so that's how the whole, the whole thing shapes up. Hey, great summary for a book you wrote uh, in 19 or no, 2015. Yeah, you wrote it in 2015. Published in 2015. So I wrote it a, couple, a year and a half before that, probably. How long did it take you to write it? <laughs> I have vivid, vivid memories of like the the early, that one, it's funny, like, it's really hard to say when, a, when you start writing a book, because it, for me, at least, sometimes you'll have an idea that you just sit on and, and you mull over in your brain for a very long time before you actually, you know, find a title for it and, you know, sit down and, and start trying to fill pages. So that one in particular, I remember I wanted to do something like that for years. I mean, literally years. And it just like, finally, it's like, then there's this moment when you just know it's time and, and you start. Yeah. And so that was like end of 2013, I started. And it's, I mean, it's a very well uh, written, but also researched uh, book. I mean, there's lots of scientific articles that you're quoting and it's very detailed, even in the way you describe the athlete's experience. I mean, uh, you interviewed some of the athletes one-on-one, -on -one. you took some from other interviews that were done of them. But I mean, the details in the book were like, she finished the finish line and 30 feet past the finish line, there was a reporter waiting to ask her how she went or, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. her duffel bag was sitting over here and like all these like little details I noticed. I mean, it wasn't just like the broad strokes. You really filled it in with color and the, the way you wrote it and how you use the stories to express the science that was going on there for somebody like me who is a high school dropout and never went to college and doesn't you know i'm like okay dumb it down for me yeah i can get that you know like that that's relatable and those stories like you said i'm a stories guy if you just wrote the science i'd be like snooze city and it, it wouldn't resonate <laughs> but if you could put it through the lens of somebody's experience you have something i think pretty awesome and I recommend that people absolutely read this book. We'll cover it here and, and listen to the podcast, but there's so many good stories and so many facts and stuff that you can take away from it. One question I had is now that we're seven, almost eight years past the release of this book, how well has it stood the test of time in terms of specifically science, the science being ever yeah. evolving? Do you think it still holds up pretty well? Yeah, I, I do. There's definitely like... 
there are a couple elements of how I explain the science. I mean, the thing thing is, I have to dumb d- science down for myself. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's why it's relatable. <laughs> and so, first you dumb it down for yourself, and then you explain exactly. it exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I do. Like, I go, I go to scientists. I'm like, make me understand this. Like, like I'm this close. You know, what I mean, that's the that's the reason I'm interested because I kind of get it, but like, I need it dumbed down. And then once it's dumbed down for me, it's easy to pass it along, but still like I will get science wrong sometimes, or I just won't, I won't find the most artful way of turning it into lay speak. So if I sat down and read the first three chapters of how bad you want it now, there would be like maybe three or four paragraphs where I would just want a do-over, you know, but also like the basic science, like that psychobiological model of exercise tolerance, it, it's a little bit hard to falsify. It just like, basically it, it has a lot of supportive evidence and it makes a ton of intuitive sense. It's like, it's the first theory of pacing and limits and endurance sports that endurance sports, endurance athletes themselves, when they hear it explained, they're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what's going on. You know, it is all mental. <laughs> One of my favorite stories, and I think one that will also relate to my audience is, and, and actually audience, um, there's lots of cycling stories in this book. I mean, you you do swimmers, triathletes, rowers, um, but there's quite a few on cycling. So being a bike podcast, I think, you know, they'll enjoy that. But the one about Greg LeMond in... 1989. Uh, what was that? That whole series. I wrote down all the notes on this. So, do you want me to? Do you want me to give an overview of this one and then kick it over to you for what it means? Sure. <laughs> you gotta. You gotta break down the psychology. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of people will probably be familiar with this, but Greg in 1996 was at the top of road cycling. And he broke his wrist, had to take some time off. During that time off in 1997, he went turkey hunting with his brother-in-law and father-in-law, I think, or uncle, something like that. Essentially, he uh, sustained, uh, his brother-in-law shot him (laughs) straight up through a bush and damn near killed him. And and your story in there is like page turning, you know, when you're like hearing the actual account of how he got to the, I don't want to give it away, but how he got to the ambulance and how they saved his life. He's truly lucky to be alive, 100%. After that, he worked towards getting back into cycling, getting back into competitive racing. He signed up with a, a new team in 1998 and soon thereafter quit uh, or was fired because he wouldn't do performance-enhancing drugs, which I really appreciated. And it actually it colors his future performance as well because you're like, okay, this guy's racing clean against people who we know are probably doping. So he quits them and gets picked up by a new team. And his racing career is not going well. We'll just summarize it by saying it's right. you know his comeback isn't a comeback yet. It's more it's pretty lackluster. In 1989, he finishes tour of Italy in 39th place and announces that he's retiring from professional cycling. He is done. But he says, you know what? Before I go, I'm going to go race Tour de France one more time. So in 1989, he signs up for Tour de France, or signs up. (laughs) He's like, where do I sign up? But he goes on to win the Tour de France, 
by making up a 50 second deficit in the very last stage, the 21st stage of the Tour de France. It was a time trial. And one of the cool things about it was he wore uh, an arrow helmet and uh, arrow bars. Everybody, no one else was wearing them. Everybody else was thinking that the other guy, Fignon, Fignon, can't remember exactly how you pronounce his name. But I mean, he, you know, Fignon was like, I'm winning. That people are congratulating him. He, you know, he's going into the 21st stage thinking he won. Because what Greg goes on to do is is thought to be nearly impossible. I mean, it's not, he's not on the radar of of winning this thing. But he does go on to win. He wins it by eight seconds. And that to this day, over that sports or that events, 120 plus years, that is still the tightest margin of victory yet in a Tour de France. I mean, it's a crazy story. It's, it's <laughs> fraught with everything you can imagine that would yep. mentally keep you from getting back to being where you once were and to win in that fashion when you thought you were done is, is truly incredible. So your turn. What does this tell us about the psychology of what Greg uh, went through. The reason I told that story, I mean, you know, I'm old enough that I, I remember that, like I was a cycling fan in 1989, you know, just a, you know, a kid at his kitchen table reading uh, the accounts of the previous day's stage in the Boston Globe. But like, I, I remember vividly, you know, following that as it went along. And it's like, you know, I collect those stories. Like I'm an endurance athlete, but I'm also an endurance sports fan. So it's like, it's nice to just tuck those away. It's like, oh, that one deserves retelling at some point. You just need to make it a vehicle for something specific, a message you want to convey. And, and the message of that chapter is I get into the science of one of the big themes of the book is how squishy our performance limits are. It's like, we tend to think of limits as limits, right? You know, just like a hard, sudden boundary, but they don't actually look that way. It's like your limits are different on different days, just based on a lot of psychological factors and goal setting factors into that. It's like, you will never get closer to whatever your true ultimate limit is than when you're chasing a goal that is almost out of reach, but not quite <laughs> because like, it's all about motivation. Like, because our limits are largely psychological, like the more motivated we are, the closer to you know whatever our absolute limit we're actually going to get, you know what I mean? Because how bad do you want it? Yeah. Uh, right. So um, you know, a goal that you just you really really want, and you do believe there's a chance, but you know you'll have to give absolutely everything you've got to have a chance of achieving it. Like that's where you want to be if you want to have the greatest performance of your entire life. And that's exactly where Greg LeMond found himself on the last day of the 1989 Tour de France. It was like perfectly set up for him to do something that seemed impossible. It's interesting, those limits. Another thing you talk about in your book is perceived limits and how they're in your mind. Another one I wanted to talk about, another story that stood out to me was um, Willie, the one-armed Willie. And I could say that because he called himself One-Armed Willie, so <laughs> I'm not being derogatory. But uh, can you surmise that story? Again, you don't have to go into extreme detail, but I really enjoyed that story. Yep. Yeah. Well, so uh, Willie Stewart was a, a high school stud athlete uh, back in the 70s and lost an arm in a construction accident when he was freshly graduated from high school. and 
like it was like de- obviously devastating for him. Uh, you know, like he fell into a deep depression, like lost his identity. But then, you know, he had something inside him that couldn't get laid. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or yeah, yeah, just like he that was a big fear. I mean, think about it. Like he's 18 years old and like he was popular with the ladies. Uh, before then. And, you know, he just lost all this confidence. He, he he just assumed it's like, oh, it's over in the romance department. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. That's how I would have felt, I'm sure, in his place. But yeah, I mean, but, you know, life does go on. Right. And obviously he had he had a strong spirit. He had just gone through something that maybe would have depressed anyone in that position, but he, he finally decided, you know what, like, I'm going to just like try to be an athlete again. So he had been a, you know, sort of like a high level rugby player. And he went back to the sport, played with one arm and he, he was so determined and so adaptive that he actually, you know, in his own estimation was a better, became a better rugby player with one arm than he'd ever been with two. Um, not just like, equal, but better, different, because he had to adapt. And then he went on from there to get into endurance sports and got into running, became like a really, not just you know, like a fast runner, like a, a very good marathon runner, and uh, got into cycling and, sw- and and swimming with one arm and uh, did an, uh, the Ironman cha- uh, World Championship triathlon and pretty fast too, you know? So like, you know, just a great example of like turning I guess like a limitation into an opportunity to become a different kind of athlete. Uh, so I refer to that phenomena as the workaround effect. Yeah. You remembered you're doing great, man. You're remembering all your stuff, the workaround <laughs> effect. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, the, you close out that chapter with a great quote. Um, so it was essentially, you know, he was asked many times, you know, afterwards, once he had kind of had all these successes with only one arm, you know, imagine what you could have done with two arms. And Willie's answer was, I wouldn't have done any of it. And I mean, I, I love that. I mean, it gives me like goosebumps, you know, I, what is that though? Um, and I wanted to give you an example of somebody that I just uh, interviewed who is going through Well, I'll just tell you, Quinn Brett, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She was a professional big wall climber, had lots of records on on big walls. And uh, and ultimately in 2017, she took a 120 foot whip on the nose of El Capitan, if you're familiar. And she essentially like hit some rock and broke her back, her spinal cord, lefting her uh, uh, paralyzed from the waist down. And it, it was pretty interesting. You might actually like to talk to her for your podcast, maybe or just in general, because, you know, you have an athlete that is literally at the top of her game and her chosen sport. And it's not an endurance sport, but I mean, can you imagine the mental toughness you need to have yeah. to be able to like oh, yeah. be at the top of this, <laughs> this game? Yes. You know, it's insane. So she goes from that to not having the uh, use of her legs and, and other, you know, uh, ailments to she just became this year, just a couple months ago, the first person to ever ride the Tour Divide, so Canada down to Mexico, on an adaptive hand cycle as a, a para-athlete. That's what it made me think of is yeah, how mentally tough you have to be and, and the, the sadness and everything you have to carry with you like, like Willie did and how you can overcome that and do something that nobody has ever done before. 
Yeah, it's the virtue of adaptiveness. Like, you know, that's what I'm preaching in that chapter. It, it's a beautiful thing. Like, if you can get into, like, if you can see that, like, being adaptive is really close to mastery in endurance sports. Like that's really what you need to be good at as, as much as toughness, like adaptable, but that's where you get your thrills as an athlete. And you wouldn't want anything tragic to happen to you, um, you know, to force you off your chosen path when it's all coming easy, easily to you. But if you get your kicks from being adaptable, like you can rebound from that. And you're like, yeah. you know what? Like, I'm sorry this happened, but life goes on, you know, and like, I still have the same mind that I had before. So let's see what we can do. Um, right. It's a, it's a great attitude and it just leads to a better life and certainly a better athletic outcome. Another note there is also um, for people listening, technology has come a long way. These bikes that she was riding, they have uh, motors in there. So essentially it, it converts her arm power to the same thing as what leg power would be because otherwise you're only going like three miles an hour or whatever. But it, it's, it's great. I mean, uh, you talked in your book about Willie, how doctors weren't even recommending at that time that you get into athletics and, and that kind of stuff. But, but now it's much different. Now doctors are like, no, this is good for you. Mind, body, soul, the whole thing, get out there and, and, and do what you can. You know, it's kind of funny and it says something cool about human nature that like on the surface, you might think that someone with a disability has less reason to be an endurance athlete. They actually have more reason <laughs> to be an endurance athlete and people get it, you know, you know, when you go from like, that's why like a lot of people like, you know, soldiers coming back from war, you know, with, you know, having lost a limb or something or all kinds of people, it's like, they weren't all that interested in doing a marathon or, you know, something, anything endurance before yeah. that, but it's like, something's been taken away from them. And like, that's part of their way of saying, like, I don't want to just live. You know what I mean? Like, I want to live for something like, you know, like it, it, it's just like you know, the, the kind of a wake up call kind of thing. It's like, you know, I wish I could do this with all four limbs, but like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 powerful stuff. And I appreciate those examples. And I think those are good to put out there. So people know that, listen, I can't imagine what it'd be like to lose an arm, lose your legs, any of that. I mean, it, but I would hope that I would have the mental toughness to get out there and, and keep pushing because that's, that's really what you're feeding is, is your mind. And, you know, if, you know, in my, in my sport, you know, nature and outdoors is a big motivator just to, you know, be away from technology and people. And it's just like, it might be the hardest endurance challenge of your life, but it's also the simplest thing of your life. And that all you got to do is wake up every day and ride your bike, eat some food and pedal. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not that complicated of a process. It's, it's just doing it for an extended period of time. Let's talk about perception of effort. And one quote from your book was, um, your mind is what stops you, not your body. And it reminded me of a story I heard David Goggins tell uh, where he talks about, I'm sure you've heard this, so, you know, his first running thing where he like wore off the soles of his feet and he's like, I pushed it to 99% and 100% is dead. 100% effort is dead, <laughs> you know, and, but I pushed it to 99. And so when I was reading this chapter, and by the way, I got to like chapter eight when I was rereading, I was trying to get through the whole thing before this podcast, but I did pretty good. But uh, I was thinking about 
David Goggins and and what your take would that on that be? Because that's essentially what you're saying is like, well, you say what you're saying, but I mean, we're my takeaway is, or my understanding is that we're just limiting, like our, we never actually get to find out what our physical capabilities are because our mind stops us before we ever get there. Is that right? And why is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a lot, a lot more concrete way to come at it, which is this, like the longest race, let, let's just take, let's, let's use running to just simplify things. Like the longest running race that you can run as an absolute sprint to maximize performance is about, you know, 400 meters. Like anything that takes longer than about 45 seconds, you can't sprint because like actual physiological fatigue will set in so catastrophically that you're lucky to finish it all. You know what I mean? Like if you started a marathon at the same pace, you started a 100 meter dash, you would not get anywhere near the finish line. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? So like, well, you could like, start it the way, same way, but you couldn't maintain it. Right. Right. It's physically impossible. And, and scientists have done like clever studies to try and figure out like exactly where that limit is. But like, it's somewhere around, you know, actually for most people, if you're, if you're not super fit, more closer to 30 seconds, like, so obviously we can go a lot longer than that, but in order to maximize performance in longer distances, we actually have to consciously hold back when we start. And so like, that's really the definition of an endurance race is anything that you have to pace in order to finish as quickly as possible. So it's like, it's like running as fast as you can without ever actually running as fast as you can, you know? (laughs) Um, No, no. When you get to within 30 seconds of the finish line, of a race, no matter how long that race is, even like a multi-day race, well, it's game on, right? Because like you can still, uh, yeah, you're tired, but you can still go all out for 30 seconds. So in that sense, yeah, you can hit your physical limit in an endurance race, but only the sprinting part at the <laughs> at the very end. Uh, otherwise, you're just like you're consciously not, you know, you're not being held back by some like internal subconscious governor that just controls your body without your knowing you're choosing to, and you're using perception of effort to guide you because if you're competitive, you want to get to the finish line as quickly as possible, but you're smart enough to know that you have to hold back to do that. Right. So then the question is like, where's the line? Like, cause if you're competitive, you want that line exactly, you know, you don't want to leave yeah. anything on the, on the table. And how do you do that? You know, these devices that we use, like we think that they guide us. They don't guide us. Like, they, like it's perception of effort that guides us. Like you have to be Sorry. able to feel. The, the what that we use, you cut out there. Sorry, uh, the devices, the gadgets we wear, you know, like, you know, the GPS stuff and the power meters, like, sorry, like those things are like useful supplemental tools, but that's not how pacing works. Like, y- like you really have to be able to feel your way to the right effort in order to, to, to achieve your limit. And you're doing that by reading your perception of effort, which is just sort of like your global sense of how hard you're working relative to your limit at any given time. You know, the more experienced you are and kind of the more gifted you are in the perception department, like the more fine-tuned you're, you are being able to read that perception to get closer and closer and closer to your, your absolute limit. It seems like the only way to really 
find that is is through experience. I mean, you speak to this, but I can't imagine that there's any shortcuts other than just learning uh, what where your perception of effort is and 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 can you push past that, you know? That is true. Um, I think, that, I mean, I don't think there are ways to sort of accelerate the process. Like if you basically understand the mechanics of how it works, you can push it along. Like you, there's still no substitute for the accumulation of experience, but you can make experience more valuable along the way if you sort of guide the process. Um, I'm actually working on a book on pacing for runners right now. And I get sort of get that's, that's what it's really all about. It's like you're learning to pace yourself by learning to read your perception of effort. It's like, okay, what can you do to, to make it, make it happen faster than if you just winged it completely? One thing I was curious about. So on these, um, and I mean, runners, any athlete runners is one, I think that dovetails pretty, especially these ultra marathon runners. I think it dovetails, dovetails pretty closely to bikepacking, especially probably from a mental and putting your body through uh, extreme effort that it's hard to duplicate, you know, a 500 mile. Well, what is a, they got like the Moab 240, you know, I don't know much about running, but I know that there's some big 200 plus mile races out there. But essentially my question is everyone will experience pain, discomfort, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard many stories of people with, you know, an Achilles heel or their knee was blown out but they kept going and then they woke up or at some instant that pain just went away and they were able to just keep on going. I, I'm curious here, what's going on? Is it is it a mental override of a physical thing? And also like, how can you be sure you're not doing damage to your body? You know what I'm saying? I mean, some ailments you need to listen to and be like, okay, hold up, this is serious. I probably need to stop before I do more injury. Other times it seems like you can just say, the way I always put it is, is like uh, your body gets on the program. You know, you're having a conversation with your body and you're like, nope, we're going. And your body eventually is like, okay, I guess, I guess we're going. And then your body gets on board. But this is a very uh, layman's example, but uh, yeah. What are, do you have any thoughts on that? Like what's going on there? It's funny. I mean, there's more than one thing that can determine when you quit in like an extreme endurance types of events when it's almost not even a sport anymore. It's more, it's like the, you know, you're, you're approaching the line between sport and survival. And so then like, cause in the stuff, in the stuff I focus on, you know, in my own coaching work, it, it's like, they're all really, you know, you're not losing sleep, you know, in these events, <laughs> running a marathon or, doing an Ironman. So it's just basically how fast can you go? The really big limiter is just getting tired. But when you go to ultra, the real ultra stuff, it can be just like an, an actual injury. Like, you know, you, you know what I mean? Either break something or you strain something or, or something has, some part of you has become like overused, you know, and it hurts like hell. And then of course, like, Often you can have pain without an actual diagnosable injury, but the pain itself can be an issue. But that's also different from fatigue. So you can be really good at handling fatigue and not all that good at, at handling pain. And so it's yeah. sort of, it depends a little bit. And that's why you'll have different types of athlete, not just physically, but personality wise, that'll gravitate to different types of sports. Like I imagine that in, in the stuff you do, like you see certain personality types. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 
it uh, it ranges greatly, and it's one thing I really like about this sport is that it's not common, but it's also not unheard of um, where a complete unknown just you know works a normal nine to five and you know whatever shows up to one of these big events and and wins it you know and it's like you're up against guys with training they're full-time racers this is all they do with coaches and all this stuff and you can have anybody show up and even uh Lael wilcox is a great example of somebody who's not who's looking for the overall not the men or women but she's like let's just look at the overall and that's what i i like about the ultra ultra long distance or whatever we want to call it. I mean, it's really an equalizer. And yeah. once you can overcome your own personal barriers to like pain and discomfort, yeah. it's much more of an, a mental endurance sport. It seems like. Yeah. It, you know, what's interesting is like, if you talk to even like, you know, let's say that bike packing blows up and goes to the, it becomes an Olympic event at some point, like God forbid, all right. Well then maybe competitive standards will, you know I mean? Like, like when there's like real, real money and fame and, yeah, and yeah, Olympic yeah. medals, like who like knows? You said, God of, forbid. Right. Like, but some kind of evolution might occur and then it will. So yeah. Until then it's the wild West. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's fun to, it's, I mean, we're watching a sport, evolve and emerge you know i mean it thing was invented and like well that's not true you know people have been putting bikes on bags on bikes and traveling i mean it used to be a primary mode of transportation before uh, automobiles and stuff so you know it's not exactly a new thing but this idea of it more is like it's it's becoming a sport a discipline and evolving into something bigger i mean it's it's inevitable i mean there's already uh x so like uh lachlan morton who i'm sure you're familiar with He's a professional road cyclist. He's come on to do uh, some bike packing events. He actually did the uh, the Alt Tour de France this year. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah, pretty cool. So he rode the entire, just for people who don't know, uh, I think Tour de France is like 2,100 miles, something like that. And he rode all 21 stages, plus he rode the connector roads to get to the start from the finish to the start of the next race. He rode everything and finished before the actual Tour de France. He'd be a good interview too. I'm trying to get him. Uh, man. Yes, I would I would love to talk to that dude. <laughs> yeah, he's hard to get, man. I've I've gone through like sponsors and all kinds of stuff to try to get him on. I'm still working on it. I'll let you know if I get him, put in a Keep good trying. word for you. Keep, yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. So yeah, actually my next question was learning to deal with pain as a coping mechanism. And uh, you, that's something that you talked in your book and I, I kind of just touched on. But this idea that you know, you're becoming more comfortable and familiar with pain and, and through that process, you're able to mentally just handle it better. And one way I was thinking about recently, I just got this tattoo on my arm which is in the exact same place as this one oh, wow. on my other arm. But I got them like two years apart. And this one, it's like I got a lot of, not a lot, I got a decent amount of tattoos now. And I've noticed that my perception of pain or my ability to tolerate that pain is much greater. I know exactly what's coming. I know how long about it's going to take. And then it's going to be over. And that's it, you know? That's called pain self-efficacy. That's what the psychologists call it. It's just like, it's just feeling competent in being able to manage a pain experience. Like that's, it doesn't mean you like pain. It just, it feels like, 
been here before, you know, figured out how, like what place I need to get to mentally, you know, to, to ride it out. And I know I can do it again. It's like, I'm not looking forward to this, but like, you know, I, I know I'm, I know I'm on top of it. Basically. That's what that attitude is. Yeah. Yeah. You can deal with it. You're tougher than you thought you are. You can do more than you thought you could. Is there a way to train for that? Or is that one, one where you need to just have some experience with pain and know that you can tolerate it and maybe just push a little further. It's just that chipping away. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, like, you know, with, with people who have chronic pain, you know, where it's really like, cause pain is psychological too. You know, it's like, it's both. Um, yeah. And so, you know, with, with chronic pain, one of the ways they try to get people through it is by actually inducing pain, you know, particularly through exercise. Yeah, it, like in in sort of that the chronic pain treatment uh, domain, like that's a thing, and you can transfer that to the endurance space as well. You know, you can you can practice exposure therapy with pain, in, you know, in a controlled and productive way as an endurance athlete. Yeah, or you could just go get a bunch of tattoos. Right. Yeah. You know what? I I'm sorry. I I you're you're right. You're right. By the way, <laughs> it's one way. It's one way. Uh, let's see here. I just wanted to cover, I'm just kind of covering, we can't get into like all the stories, but I just wanted to hit on some of the high points in the book. So one thing I thought was interesting is like, why does your mind freak out under a lot of stress? You know, it seems so counterproductive that, you know, if we're talking about evolution, we got to run away from a bear or fight a bear or whatever we're doing, that we're going to have a panic attack and have all this anxiety that we have to work through. And our mind like slows down, it seems like. I mean, it does some weird stuff and you touch on that. So, I mean, it's not productive to performance. Why do we have that? And I mean, I guess that's what we're trying to overcome, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of those types of instincts around fear and anxiety, I mean, they're protective. Like what what they're trying to get us to do is, well, they're trying to get us not to do things. Like, you know, think of like fear of public speaking, like, that doesn't make any sense. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, if you're, if you're afraid of being embarrassed for botching a speech, like having an anxiety attack, isn't going to help you avoid that. (laughs) It's going to ensure it happens. But the whole, the whole reason it exists is to keep us from giving the speech in the first place. You know what I mean? Uh, So. Yeah. Because you said in your book that the idea there is that, what, what was it? If like you're a leader, then you're more likely to be on the chopping block and people didn't want to be a leader. It's just like, it's easier just to be in the crowd kind of. Right. Yeah. Not so much a leader as, but as singled out or the focus of attention. Like, yeah. Like just like, you know, that's the idea. This is not coming from me, but like from right. paleoanthropologists or whatever who speculate. And that's, that's what it really is. It's like, well, in what kinds of situations in like prehistorical man, you know, would, would someone be like the focus of everyone's attention? (laughs) It's so interesting how we've evolved to, yeah, kind of have this anxiety and all this pressure and stuff around difficult tasks. It seems contrary to being helpful. Now is public speaking, maybe, yeah, you don't want to, I mean, it's the same way today, right? I mean, if you 
say something that somebody doesn't like today, I mean, you're going to get canceled probably, maybe, you know I mean? It's just like, you gotta, you gotta be careful uh, when you're using your mouth, apparently, because people get mad. I guess back in the day, you used to just kill you. Now they just cancel you. So maybe it got better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah, we have all these kind of seemingly like self-defeating instincts in us. And like, you know, they're really, they can be kind of debilitating, like the different, you know, the way fear can, hold us back and make us self-sabotage, but it can be sort of like dispiriting to recognize that, like it's part of like being human, but you can also look at it as an athlete, as an opportunity, because you know, that, that saying, like, if you're, if you and a friend are being chased by a bear in the woods, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than your friend. Same thing with like, just how freaking hard you know, endurance sports are mentally, you know, they bring out a lot of those instincts, you know, cause like the suffering is so intense that, you know, all kinds of self-sabotage happens out on the, on the race course. Well, you know, you can look at that and say, well, what if I'm just faster than my friend, not faster than the bears? Like, I don't have to be unafraid. Like, like I don't have to be a robot. I just have to be that much tougher than everyone else who's experiencing just what what I am, right. you know. That's yeah. that's why you talk about the democratizing aspect of the mental dimension. It's like that could be you. Like you you could be the one, you know, who's just that much tougher. And then just yeah, it's still hard, but you're yeah. actually it's your competitive advantage. Yeah, that's a great point that you know you should keep in mind is that everybody's experiencing the same terrain, weather, you know, the distance. It's all it's all the same, and so then it gets. It's, it's an opportunity. The reason I love it and probably you love it too, is it's an opportunity to teach yourself about yourself, things that you never knew. If you want to learn how tough you are mentally or physically, if you want to be able to learn how to overcome and how bad you want it and all this stuff, it, that's your opportunity. That is your playing field to go out there and learn how capable you really are. You know, we're not, I mean, we drive in luxury vehicles with air conditioning. We got microwaves and ovens and air conditioning. You know, we got all the things, you know, we're, we're never really in a place where we have to find out these things about ourselves unless we're willing to go out there and push it. And that's kind of the fun. I mean, like you said, I mean, I, I like to shape it and be like, this is, you shouldn't like get down on yourself or anything really. I mean, I know people do, they put in a lot of time, work, effort, and maybe it doesn't go right. But ultimately everybody's on a journey. This one just happens to be yours and, and, you know, just do the best you can kind of, you know, and then, then what you do is you build on it. If it's a failure, then you learn from it and you, you go on, you build and you learn from it and you go, you know? Quite honestly, and in, in throughout my racing career, I experienced more failure than success for sure. And I'm, I'm tempted to say a lot more <laughs> failure than success. I mean, part of that is just how you look at it, but, and part of it is just like, I'm, I am very competitive. So like, you know, I really wanted to always get better, but despite that, like that doesn't affect how much I value being an athlete. Like to to me, that's not even really a negative. It's just a fact. Like I failed a lot because I, I set a high bar, you know, having that high bar took me on a journey that I would not have had otherwise. So honestly, like, you know, I I had a really short memory for disappointments and failures. Like, it was just like, I I, I was over it like that. 
because uh, that's not really what it was about. Yeah, Hunter. And if you're going to push yourself and try to find your limits, well, eventually, sometimes you're going to find them. And again, that's where I think failure can be a good thing, because if you choose to learn from it, that was a weakness that you can now take that information and, and you'll have that as an arsenal next time you go out. So, yeah, I, I think just reframe the way you look at it. It's, it's never a failure unless you choose to make it a failure. You know, it reminded me as you were talking about another story in your book of Cadell Evans, um, who I think it said this in your book. Uh, he should be known as the guy who failed to win the Tour de France more than anyone else before finally winning it. And uh, you talked about that was in the the um, the chapter about sweet disgust, which uh, which I've. I've referred to this in my own life before I ever read, read your book as um, getting mad at it. You know, I'm not a mad person. I'm very chill. But if there's a hill, a big hill climb, and I'm struggling or whatever, I will I will go into a mental energy of, I look at a me against the hill, you know, is like, I am not going to let you win. I no motherfucker, you are going down. I am winning, you know? And it's like, I, I get myself riled up to overcome that challenge. Which is an interesting psychological trick or tip. I mean, that's what's known as self-regulation, which is really, you know, that's what, like, from a kind of bioevolutionary perspective, like, that's what we're doing when we're endurance racing. Like, it, it's like a, it's a very sort of almost primeval kind of self-regulation challenge where, like, you have a very concrete, specific, challenging goal and you have to regulate your behavior and internal states in a way to, to achieve that goal. And it's not easy. And so if you're going to do it really well, you've got to be really good at self-regulation. And there's like, there's a cognitive component to that, like the whole like art of pacing and, you know, reading your perception of effort, but there's also a very important emotional component. Like you need to regulate your emotions in a way that like, so all, all, all auras are pulling in the same direction, like, you know, mind, body, emotions. If you sort of discover that it helps to get angry at Hills and it works, you know, it works. And like, it, it might be weird. It might not be what the guy next to you does, but like, if it works for you, it works for you. And that's just like experienced, competent self-regulation. Okay. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. I, uh, and I guess it makes sense. We're all different. And so the way we approach and mentally tackle challenges is going to vary. I've interviewed other people and I'm, I'm just, and I've kind of put it in that way. It's like, do you ever like get mad at it and get real like, and like, I'm going to, you know, do this. And like, um, I'm actually thinking of Leo Wilcox. I remember, cause I asked her this question cause she is such a badass, you know, but she's so, she reminds me of like Courtney Dewalter in the running world, who you're probably more <laughs> familiar with, you know, just like a very chill and, you know, uh, happy-go-lucky kind of. And she's like, no, I'm just having fun. You know, I'm just out there. Just I love it. You know, I just love to do it. And and I think maybe that could be your motivator is just you, you just love doing the thing that she just happens to be good at. It. She does it a lot. So there's no one right. I guess that was my question for you on that though, is like, so it, that's not a trick that necessarily should be employed for everybody, but could be a useful tool. Yeah. You know, it, it's an interesting question. Like, you know, what, what are the things you sort of have to have, you know, in your, in your sort of mental toolkit 
to really excel as an endurance athlete and wh- which, which things are sort of optional or like individual. There are some things that fall in both, both buckets. I mean, I, there's certain things you have, I mean, you know, pacing is a very specific skill and like you have to be good at that and not, not everyone has what it takes to, to get good at that. So that's one thing. Um, but other things are like, but even like, you know, there, there's like strategic styles that are somehow rooted in personality versus, you know, there's some athletes who really like to lead. There's some athletes who really like to follow, you know, and there's some athletes who really like to be alone. I, I like to be alone. Like, yeah. So, you know, even in crowded races, I, I like to be alone. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, but it's funny. And, and like, you know, there's actually been, uh, I just interviewed for my podcast, uh, uh, an Irish sports psychologist who's done research, like showing that like, if you are forced to do it a way that's not natural, you don't perform as well. So it's like, it's not all one strategy works the best for everyone. It's like, it has to fit something, you know, just like in the way you're, you're put together. Yeah. It's got to resonate with who you are as a person for sure. We, we keep mentioning pacing and that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about again, for my audience, it's almost always going to be, I mean, yeah. I mean, a lot of my audience will also do like a mountain bike race or a road race or whatever. But I mean, the primary topic of this podcast is about bikepacking, ultra endurance racing. And so these multi-day, even multi-week events, you know, the Tour Divide, the record, I think is 13 days. So most people are finishing it 14, 15 and plus days after that. What, what is your advice to people for pacing on such a long event? You know, the whole reason that other animals can't pace the way we can, I mean, they do pace. Like I, I give the example of like cheetahs, like, you know, uh, zoologists have like studied how cheetahs hunt and they actually pace themselves in very sophisticated ways. Like w- w- when, when they're like chasing gazelles on the African savanna or whatever, but what they can't do is like, they couldn't pace any race longer than they could see the finish line of like, they have to see the gazelle or they can't do it. Humans like we comprehend abstract distances, uh, you know, so like, you know, I've run enough 10 Ks that I know what a 10 K is. And so I know how fast to run the first 100 yards, you know, of of a 10 K race. But when you get to like, again, like to the point where it's like, it's as much survival as it is sport, like then that's like a whole different realm of abstraction. That's that's like galactic, you know? Um, And at that point, I think you really, all that, don't even think you can feel your way, <laughs> you know, like what, what you have to do, I, I would do two things. Like if I wanted to achieve mastery, it, like in, in pacing those types of events, I would study just like success. I would look at like, what are you know, the athletes who win or perform well for their age or you know sex or whatever, like, what are they doing pacing wise? Wow. And that's what I would use to get started, you know? Cause like, I mean, you don't know, <laughs> you know, and then, and then like experience really has to do the rest and, and you have to, you have to just accept that you're going to blow it big time. Like there's no way, like there's no way you're going to avoid no matter how naturally cut out you are for it. Like you're going to make a gigantic pacing error at some point and that's fine. Just, you know, you're in it for the long haul anyway. Right. Like you should never want to do just one of these things. <laughs> no, heck no. Even if it's a bad first experience, it's still a, yeah, still a journey. You're on a journey. 
it almost seems like in bikepacking, it gets to the point where it's almost only mental toughness. You know, it's almost, it's not like you're not like worried about pacing as much as you are just like keeping going. You know, it's like, because I mean, these folks that do this stuff, I mean, they'll go on, you know, Sofian, he likes to go a good 72 hours before he gets his first sleep. And then it's going to be like a couple hours. And then he's going to go for another however many miles, you know. And I think that's why the mental side, it probably even comes out bigger. It's not, you know, even a hundred mile race, you could, I mean, you can train for a hundred mile race. I mean, you can get all your Watts and your VO. I mean, you can like really pace a 100 mile race, but, um, it seems like at some point your body just is like, okay, I want to give up. And it literally just becomes a mental endurance sport where you're just mentally pushing yourself further than hopefully you've ever gone faster than you've ever gone. I don't know. Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, the mind can't make the body do anything that is physically impossible for, for the body to do. Like, you know, the mind can't work miracles. Like, you know, you, you can't, sorry to disappoint your listeners, but like you can't jump off a building and fly just because you believe you can, you can fly. So like, you know, physical limits are real and if you want to succeed in any type of endurance sport, you have to respect your limits. And, and, and so, you know, for, you know, for bikepacking events, I just think it, it, you're really doing the same thing, which is like maintaining a pace that basically guarantees you'll be able to finish physically. Like it's physically, you will have the energy to do it. It's sustainable that doesn't mean you're going to do it. <laughs> so, you know, that's, a, that's the thing, like in any race that has a finish line, job number one is to get to the finish line. So even if you're trying to, there's a guy, an Ethiopian runner, uh, Kenanisa Bekla. I don't know if, if I'm a fan, I've been a fan forever. He's, he's going for the world record in the marathon in Berlin to, well, tonight, my time. So even when you're trying to break the world record in the marathon, job number one is to finish. So you're actually, it, it's like, how can you run conservatively when you're trying to break the world record? It's like, well, you are because you, you're running at a pace where you know, yeah, you may hit the wall, but you're going to finish. Like yeah. they're, they're all doing that. And then it's just a matter of finding that line. It's like, okay, well, I definitely don't want to hit the wall or I'm not going to break the world record. So it's like, how far can I push it? But, but, but decision number one is to finish. And so I think, you know, in like, you know, multi-day type of thing, like physically you're down to sort of metabolic limits. It's not even about VO2 max or anything like that. It's like, it's pretty, it's like pure metabolism. And so you just like experience will tell, tell you like what that pace is. It's going to carve you hollow. It's going to be, it's going to take everything physically you've got, but still like it's conservative in its way. Like, you know, you, you, so, so it's, it ain't about the physical anymore. Like, you, like you, you've, you set on a pace that is sustainable and then like in something like that, it's just like, I don't know how far in it happens when you really enter the pain cave, but at some point, you know, you're going there and like, it's all about that. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping that a lot of people that participate in my race and, and, you know, people that just listen to podcasts and do these kinds of things. But a lot of these people, I know for my race, particularly, there's two events. It's a 280 and a 380 mile race held at the same time. 
And I have a lot of people that are doing an event like this for the very first time. I mean, yes, they've trained, but this will be their first bikepacking race, first time they've ever gone this far. They're going to be experiencing pain and discomfort and um, the fear of the unknown and all these things. What advice would you give? I mean, I know you're a coach and you could, we could really like get one of these people into your program and really work with them. But I mean, if you were just going to talk to somebody, you know, the day or two before that they were going to line up for a, a task that they had never sought out to try before, what kind of advice would you give them to help them overcome that effort? I think the underlying goal for every athlete and every race is to do the best they can. And like, even the greatest champions will tell you like, that is the best feeling. It's like when they finish a race, knowing they raced as the best version of themselves. Like they gave what they had within them to give and no less. And it's like, for, you know, for, and for we're talking about like people who win a lot, sometimes their, their, their fondest memories of, is of races they lost because they were stretched further and like they, they went deeper into themselves and like you're on that same journey, even if you're a first timer and you're not really all, all that competitive. Like if you get to a point where you're just really struggling and you're doubting yourself and you don't know what to do, you know, and you're kind of torn, like kind of re remember that it's just like, it's okay to like, you know, not finish or, you know, it's, it's okay to like not achieve your goal is it okay to not do your best? So, and that, that can just be a nice, it still, it still leaves pressure on you. Like it's hard, it's hard to do your best, <laughs> but it takes some pressure off because it's not anything external. It's just like, you know, I want to compete as the best version of myself. I want to look back on this and be proud of myself. If you, if you can walk away with that, you know, your time or your place or whether you finish or not actually doesn't really matter. I think that's extremely well put. I appreciate that. You should hold yourself accountable to, uh, and again, these solo self-supported, I mean, yeah, there's other people in the field, but man, you're just out there on your own, uh, working through the problems and the challenges that come up. And, you know, maybe the, the, how bad do you want it? Maybe the it in that sentence is, or that question is how bad do you want to do your best? Is that a, is that a fair way to put it? I mean, it's just like, yes. And I think, I mean, it's a great, just a simple mantra that when you're tired, you're fatigued, you're hungry, you hurt, you just ask yourself, how bad do you want it? You know, like all the training, all the things that you said you were going to do and everything is like, how bad do you really want it? And the interesting thing about what we learned from talking to you today is, you know, our, our mind is the thing that's limiting us. So oftentimes you know, I'd encourage people to, to, to keep that in mind and to like try to work through it. But ultimately, yeah, if you can walk away knowing that you did your best, then um, that should be a, a, a high priority. So I like that a lot. Listen, my friend, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, I've got... I've got quite a few more questions and you already agreed before we started recording to uh, come back on the podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, hold you to that because uh, you, you're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you've been doing this not only as an athlete, but also as a writer and a coach for many years. And um, these are these are interesting conversations that I don't think are happening as much in bikepacking because it's still kind of young. So I, I definitely appreciate your time and your, your expertise. And why don't you tell people just... I mean, where can they find your podcast and, and, and catch up with all the things that you have going on? 
Sure thing. Um, yeah, so my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org. And then I guess my business website is 8020endurance.com. Um, that's where the, the podcast lives and um, all kinds of other resources. Yeah, it's called 8020 Endurance Podcast, right? That's right. Yep. And that's hosted with you and... Uh, Hannah Hunstadt, uh, who's like, yeah, she's half my age and like, uh, was a college swimmer. And so like, it's like, uh, an odd couple type of arrangement, but you know, it's like, like the old Mike and Mike slogan, what makes them different makes them better. Uh, yeah, it's just like, uh, it works. Trust me. <laughs> well, I was even reading your bio on your 8020 website and it said, um, that your partner, and I don't remember your business partner. I don't remember his name, but, uh, you said he's essentially good at all the things I'm bad at. So it works really well. Yes. Yes. Cool, dude. Well, thank you for your time. I'll let you go and we'll, uh, we'll schedule another one in the future sometime. Sounds good. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Have a good one. Enjoy, uh, watching your, uh, your marathon race tonight. I hope, hope your guy wins. Right on. No, not right. wins. Breaks the world record. Yeah. Breaks the world record. What is the world record? I'm sorry. I don't know. Uh, two hours, one minute and 39 seconds. For a marathon? Yes, sir. Jesus. <laughs> it used to be three hours. Like when I was preparing for this, I was like thinking about one thing we didn't talk about that we could like get into maybe next time is, you know, those mental barriers and all that. And like how when one person breaks through it. So now you're telling me that there's a, the barrier of two hours is, is maybe going, that's like the next thing. Oh, that's going to be fascinating. From your standpoint, it's like, okay, once somebody breaks the two, are 20 people going to break it? You know? I don't know. Uh, you know, we're, you know, a lot of records are being broken just because of, of advances in shoe technology. And so that, that kind of thing is really unpredictable. You know, just these wild cards that come along. Uh, I could talk to you for hours. So I'll let you go. Enjoy the race and uh, we'll catch up with you next time. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks, buddy. Okie dokie, folks. That is it for Matt and I's conversation. I really encourage you to either read or listen to the audiobook of How Bad Do You Want It if this is something that kind of appeals to you. The way he wrote the book is informative and interesting, and the way my brain works at least, it helps me to kind of remember the principles that he's talking about. And uh, like I said, it's it's uh, I still to this day will ask myself the question, not only on bike rides, but just in life, how bad do you want it? And you have to answer yourself, I want it bad enough. And uh, it doesn't matter. You can apply that to anything. And I have since reading that book. So I recommend you check it out if you like this podcast. And uh, you can probably just Google it. I'll also put a link to his book in the show notes. And... That's it. We're going to do it short and sweet because I got things to do. So I'm going to get off of here and get to it. I'll see you back here next week. But until then, don't forget to ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 